Hello everyone, this is Kayla, I am Kayla, and hopefully we are all here for the same reason, and that's to hear part two of the KFC Killers case. So without further ado, this is Black True Crime. Welcome again, everyone. I am excited to get into the rest of this case. I'm not even going to waste your time, honestly. <laughs> I'm ready to get into it. So let's just go. So this whole time, basically the whole investigation, everything like that, the questioning that he underwent, Romeo was claiming that he was innocent and that basically him and his cousin had been framed. He said, quote, this case is all about conspiracy. If you look at this case, you've got two black guys. That's all that matters. Did I mention that all of the victims are white? They're Caucasian, if you will. You'll see pictures of them on the Instagram if you want to check that out. So David Griffith, one of Pinkerton's trial lawyers, agreed with Jimerson that his client's conspiracy theory was difficult to believe. <laughs> Which, I mean, with the physical evidence that they had, I, I'm not fighting that. So, by the way, Jimerson is on the prosecution side working with my girl, Linda. David, which is his own counsel, said, quote, You would have to have somebody planting evidence roughly five years before DNA became useful as a forensic tool. That would be like someone... <laughs> That would be like somebody planting evidence of ballistics five years before guns were invented. So, yeah, even your own counsel is like chill on that racist insinuations because it's far-fetched in this one, buddy. They got you to rights. So when it came to Pinkerton's trial, Tanner addressed the fuck-ups in the investigation off it before the defense could, which was very, very smart. She even mentioned how they were super pressed on Jimmy Mankins, remember him, from part one, um, for far too long. She also pointed out how the investigators thought Opie ran away from the others, but in reality was separated from them in order to be raped. And that the semen found on her pants belonged to a third suspect. And basically everyone freaked out in the room. It was like, oh, oh, you know, oh, my Lanta. One of those moments. So his defense team, Jeff Hayes, 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 apologized, Jeffrey, and David Griffith expected this tactic from Linda and had a plan of their own. Griffith started by saying that in 1983, no one knew about DNA. No one knew anything. And they damn sure didn't know anything about preserving it or protecting it from contamination, which is probably true. So... Um, he also pointed out that the semen on Miss Opie's pants on the blood and the blood stains found on Monty Landers. Remember, he had that those stains on his shirt. None of it matched Pinkerton or Hartfield. Then, okay, go ahead, defense team. Got to give him props when they're trying. When their clients basically seem super, super guilty. 
Then he proceeded to urge the jury to ignore their emotions and look at the evidence before or because, quote, this case is built on not only the evidence that you hear, but also on the evidence you don't hear. Dramatic pause. What the fuck is that? I mean, like, yeah, a lot of things are not admissible or anything, but what is he talking about? I would love to know what he's referring to. Because I can't, I don't know. So, he said that. <laughs> um, when the prosecutor brought out Miss Badass Beasley, Lorna, onto the stand to testify about the accuracy of the blood stain from the napkin matching with Pinkerton. Remember that napkin? And she said, yeah, it's like super solid, boo. Not a direct quote. Wish it was. And the defense hollers out, objection! This is real life. That happened. <laughs> but it's like, what are you objecting to? Science? Come on, buddy. Come on. Lose gracefully. We all have to do it sometimes. An FBI agent that was on the case testified about a letter that he submitted that was written by Pinkerton, stating that he had never been to the KFC ever in his life, claiming that he was in prison still when the murders happened, which we know is a lie. So, you know, perjury and all that. Because he had no explanation for basically how his DNA got there, his attorney Hayes challenged this so-called letter and even said, listen, even said the signature at the bottom of the page looked more like his own signature than it did Pinkerton's. That's like a fucking laugh to me. Honestly, I feel like he's reaching, you know, I would love to see that signature because come on. If you have like a signed sworn statement of like a lie, you can't really get around that. So remember the white van that was used to transport the five victims? Well, it turned out that it belonged to a man named Robert Franklin. Now, Robert Franklin used this van for his cleaning service. He had his own cleaning business. And he also had a friend that he would let borrow the van on occasions. And guess what that friend's name was? Elton Winston. Remember that guy? He was the third guy that was on that flyer that basically no one saw or knew about. Yeah, him. And through this Winston character, Franklin was able to meet Darnell Hartsfield. He claims he doesn't remember or never met Romeo Pinkerton. Robert said he ended up selling the van for $50, okay, to a man because apparently it needed really expensive repairs and he just didn't want to pay that. When it's like, you're selling a whole van for $50, to a man that I don't know if they ever found out who that man was, but hmm, sounds really sketchy. You know what also sounds sketchy? In 1984, a police officer would pull over that same exact van and charge the driver with speeding and driving without a license. And this was around 2.30 a.m. And guess who that driver was? Mr. Elton Winston, this guy is just popping up like a fucking crazy man. I feel like he has something to do with this, do you? <laughs> so the prosecution pulled out some more witnesses. I mean, they were ready to go. So this guy, he was an inmate named Ronald Knoll, met Pinkerton while he was housed in the Smith County Jail. 
He testified that although Romeo never admitted to being at the KFC, he did admit to committing other robberies with Darnell Hartsfield in the past. Which for me, if I was a juror, it would be like a nail in the coffin. It's like, one, you just proved that you've done it in the past, like you've robbed before. And two, two comes in the following statement. (laughs) This inmate, by the way, received no deal. He was due to be released within the next couple of months anyway. So he was really just trying to do, I guess, the right thing. So yeah, kind of credible for me. There was also another inmate to speak out on the fact that Romeo was giving off like kind of these vibes that he may have known more about the killings than he was letting on. Um, Apparently they were playing chess one day in like the common area and some guy was just talking about the murders. I guess he brought them up. Romeo asked the guy, he was like, Hi, what you know about the murder? Like, you know, trying to figure like, what you know, what you know? And the guy said, I don't know a damn thing. What you know? And then the inmate testified that Romeo put an imaginary gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Yeah. Kind of gave me chills. Um, The witness reported this to his defense attorney, which is like a good thing. And he then reported it to Tanner, Linda Tanner. The witness said he will never forget the look in Romeo's eyes when he, like, pulled that trigger. Could you imagine, like, looking to into the face of probably evil, probably someone really, like, sick, you know, doing something like that? Even if you didn't kill them, like, why would you do something so morbid? Shout out to Morbid Podcast. Um, but, yeah, weird. So that Friday, court was adjourned until the following Tuesday when, guess what? Someone reached a plea deal like a fucking pussy because, I mean, smart because (laughs) this nigga was going down and I was hoping that he was facing death, okay? But he pled guilty to the five first-degree murder charges and he received five life sentences, because of something called allocution, the agreement does not require the person to di- that like divulge any information about the crime. So like any details, the where's, the when's, the why's, none of that, which really fucking sucks because one, I'm nosy. Two, I feel like the family is just, you know, everyone deserves to know why this horrible thing happened. At his sen- sentencing, the families of the victims came forward to speak the mother of Linda Landers, the mother of Monty, David Maxwell Jr., who is the unborn son of David Maxwell, Kathy Hamilton, the sister of David Maxwell, and she told Pinkerton straight to his face, you're not only a murderer, but a coward, period, okay? And also the children of Opie Hughes and her husband, Jack. So Jack had some like really moving, powerful things to say. Um, He was shouting, really. And he said, look at me. You had no right. No one has the right to be the animal that you are. Thank you for looking at me. And then he took like a deep breath to compose himself. I want you to think of me for the next 100 years. When you draw your last breath, that's when your punishment will begin. So with one man sent away for these crimes, we have two more to go. Now it's time for Darnell Hartsfield's trial.
Hartsfield actually seemed a little emotionally affected at times during the trial because his sister would show up. Remember in episode seven, I talked about how close-knit his family was and supportive to each other, but I don't think they came to a lot of his trial. They haven't really spoke out, I guess, about these issues because I couldn't find fucking anything. So yeah, I guess you can make your own assumptions. Killingsworth, which was the last name of one of the people on his defense team, tried to make it seem like Mary Tyler's daughter, Kim, who also worked at the restaurant, was stealing from the restaurant. And I mean, you can't really blame him because he has to try to create some type of doubt. When it comes to this case, Mr. Tyler, which is her dad, testified and told the truth. He was like, yeah, Kim's a fucking thief. Like she has a tendency to steal, but she would never steal from the store, which is kind of like, mm, if she steals from the store, she's technically stealing from you guys, right? I, I don't know. Like, I don't know how that works, but if you're a thief, you'll probably steal from anyone. He even pointed out in court that Kim continued to steal things from him, things and money, even after the death of her mother. So if Killingsworth was trying to create some reasonable doubt, if I was in the jury, I may be looking like, hmm, maybe somebody should have looked more into that Kim girl and see what she was really up to and who she was fraternizing with. The first officer on the scene on the night of the murders testified that he didn't remember seeing a box at the restaurant, okay? The box, meaning the one that had the blood on it, claiming to be Darnell's blood. Um, But he said he also wasn't really looking for evidence. (laughs) He was more so looking for, like, a suspect or, like, victims, anyone that needed help, which is what he's supposed to do. So good on you. The defense then focused on the sloppy investigation and pointed out key sketchy motherfucking things like, pay attention to this guys, it's kind of crazy, like the fact that the whole entire evidence log from the Kilgore Police Department disappeared. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? Like it just grew legs, wanted to sites you wanted to get more out of life and disappeared. Detective Pirtle said it was there when he was there, and I'm guessing he retired because he's super, super old. Um, and then after he left, it goes missing. Very fucking interesting. He also stated that he never remembered seeing a bloody box or anything like that. And that while he was there, because there was so many different I guess government agencies working on this because you know there was the state, there was um, the feds, we have the FBI. It was just a lot of people going going in on this. It really could be possible that someone brought in some information or some new evidence and just never told anyone else, never shared it with the group, which is so fucked because this could probably set back a lot of things. You know what I'm saying? Actually, no. It did set by a lot of things. So, yeah. Not good on you. Bad on you. Fucked on you. Lynetta Ashley, who was also a worker at KFC, she actually actually worked that night, you guys. But her mother picked her up before closing for some reason. I'm not exactly sure why. But people started calling her Lucky Lynetta after that. 
But on the stand, because she did testify during this trial, she was kind of fucking weird, guys. Like, okay, you just, you tell me what you think about this. So when the prosecution asked if she'd seen a box under the cash register that night, she said, quote, there should have been a box there. I don't know why it wouldn't be there. It was so long ago that I'm going to have to say, no, it didn't. Hmm. When asked if she's seen the two black men walk in, she said, quote, I don't remember, but I'm not going to say there wasn't. <laughs> bitch, what? Like, not really trying to call you a bitch, but like, oh, like, what? No. When asked if she saw any suspicious vehicles that night, she said no. Her mother had picked her up in the front. So she wouldn't have seen if someone was parked in the back. That's like the, I think that's the most sense she's made since she stepped onto that stand. I mean, she was just, I know it's possible to be nervous and kind of unsure of yourself when you're under such amounts of pressure, but like, <laughs> it was, no, I could have did without you, to be honest. <laughs> Doug Collard who was the head of the crime scene unit, called to the scene. He said that as soon as he got there, he had to lock the scene the fuck down. He said there was so many news and media people standing way too fucking close to the crime scene that there was like foot traffic. You know what I'm saying? It was foot traffic basically in and out of the restaurant. In and out of the restaurant, the parking lot. I mean, there was people everywhere. Everywhere. Useful evidence is now literally forever lost because of this. Linda Tanner asked him if there was a normal, like, route to go, if this was normal, to have multiple agencies being involved in the collection of evidence. And Homeboy said flat out, no. And that, quote, if they were going to do this, there was no reason to call us. I mean, you better say that. And he said that on the stand. It's their job to collect evidence. It's their job to do it securely, safely, to avoid contamination, to be actually credible and used in the right way to solve these crimes. What are you doing? What are you doing, sir? With badge. Whew, get me upset. When Doug finally did get to do his thing, he said he did admit to taking pictures of a blood stain that was on the lower shelf, but he did not recall seeing the box or the napkin, saying that it was possible some officers just tried to bag it and tag it before he got there, which, like he already pointed out, and like we already knew, they were doing their own investigations. Unwarranted as fuck. By the way, in the 2005 perjury case of Hartsfield, Ranger Dowell, the individual who said who was said to have logged the evidence, said that Kilgore Police Captain Marvin Avance collected both the box and the napkin before other detectives even arrived, which is super interesting to me. Former Captain Avance was really, I guess, in the crapper as far as his health in 2005, so he couldn't testify which is also interesting, but sad. Since Dowell was dead when this trial was going on, the defense tried to get his previous testimony thrown out. 
But the judge agreed with the prosecution and said that since it had been admitted into Hartsfield's perjury trial and directly pertained to the murders as well, he would allow it in. But the defense would not give up, obviously, their fighters, as I'd hoped so, and came with the fact that there was no gu gun that conclusively matched the 11 bullets that were used to kill the victims, which I honestly have no explanation for. Usually when you're like in the hood and stuff like that, like people just, I don't know, you could sell a gun, be like, hey, here's a gun. So I guess until someone uses it or finds it and turns it in, we'll never fucking know. But Miss Tanner was ready, Miss Tanner meaning Linda, my bad bitch, was ready to put the nail in the coffin with this guy. She pointed out the fact that Hartsfield lied about receiving any cuts during the year 1983. So basically in the year 1983, he said, I didn't injure myself. I didn't have anything significantly painful or scarring happen to me, which, um, first of all, for me, who the fuck will remember that? I would not, 20, I would not remember that. Sorry. I guess he did. But I guess if you cut your hand so deep that it caused permanent damage, you'd probably remember that. That's what Hartfield told a medical professional in 1999, given the reasoning that, quote, oh, I cut my hand on a beer bottle in 1983. Oh, guys, I got like a chill, like right in my like armpit for some reason, like right under, <laughs> like in my rib cage. Oh, okay. But first of all, how the hell can you get cut like that? Okay. On a beer bottle. Anyway, I feel like also if he cut his hand like that at the scene, there would have been a lot more blood. Hmm. That's something to think about. But I don't know everything, you guys. What can I say? I don't know. The defense tried to object by saying that there was no way to know when in the 12-month period of 1983 that that injury occurred. Lord help us all. Which is like, you're right. Like I, Now it kind of sounds like, I don't know. The prosecution may be reaching just in that sense. Because I feel like there really is no way unless you had like a medical record of it. The judge, Judge Gossett, of course, let it in because he was literally letting everything in that the prosecution wanted. Not to mention, you guys, that a man named James Rowe, who testified at a grand jury in 2003, that on the night of the murders, he almost got in an accident with a person driving a white van near the restaurant. Listen to this. Listen to this. Talk about reasonable doubt. He said the van came out into the road all sporadic and he had a slam on his brakes coming maybe literally maybe a foot from hitting the van's driver's side door. So he was super, super close. He could clearly see, I guess, the person. He said the driver was a white man with a beard. Now, I don't know if you guys checked out the Instagram and saw the pictures, but on one of the pictures, there was a man in handcuffs and he had like a thick, thick mustache and kind of long hair. And his name was Jimmy Mankins Jr. I'm not jumping to conclusions or suggesting anything, but I am saying maybe he grew out a beard. I mean, maybe he cut his beard since that before that picture was taken. Maybe he was driving that night. Reasonable doubt. 
The family members spoke at this trial as well, with Jack Taylor getting enraged again, which is understandable, asking Hartsfield, do you care? Do you? This is a quote. If you do care, then you better get your heart ready with God, or you will surely go to hell. You better say that. I'm snapping for that, and I want you guys to hear it. On September 9th, 2008, jury selection in the case against Darnell Hartsfield begins. By October 1st, 2008, Darnell Hartsfield's trial would be fucking over. I'm cracking up, belly laughing. That's what you get. So clearly it was super, super quick. They laid it out. They did what they had to do. And apparently the prosecution spanked the defense and he was convicted of all five murders. He also was sentenced to five years in prison. Five years in prison. 500 years in prison, okay? Five life sentences. So on October 22nd, 2009, Darnell Hartsfield files an appeal. Now remember he has, he can file an appeal for two cases. He can file an appeal for his perjury and because he got life for that bitch. And he can file an appeal for these murders. February 5th, 2010, his appeals were obviously thrown the fuck out and his conviction was upheld for the murders. Still keeping the faith, though. (laughs) On September 7th, 2012, Romeo Pinkerton and Darnell Hartsfield requested a new DNA test be done. And that was also denied by the same judge, Clay Gossett, that was allowing everything in for the prosecution. So clearly, I feel like the judge was like, yeah, you guys are guilty. And I know it. And I'm going to help the prosecution prove it. Hartsfield and Pinkerton were both given the life sentences and they were both upheld. Hartsfield is said to spend most of his time now reading Westerns and philosophy books and preparing for his court proceedings because, like I said, he is still fighting for his other case. Romeo rarely spoke with media after his conviction, and if he did, he would only say that he pleaded guilty to avoid the death penalty. Which is like, I hear you, but your homeboy didn't plead guilty. And somehow he still managed to dodge it. So I don't know. I hear you, but I don't know. The third perpetrator, however, the one that raped and killed, possibly killed, Opie Hughes, is still out there somewhere. According to Detective Pirtle in 2014, he said, quote, The fact that they have still not implicated the third person tells me two things. One, that he is still alive. And one, that he is kinfolk. To this day, Romeo and Darnell still claim that they are innocent of these crimes. I actually have an audio of Romeo Pinkerton explaining how he is innocent and why he was targeted. Listen. The names David Maxwell, Joey Johnson, Monty Landers. I don't know any of them. You don't know any of them? I've never seen them day in my life. Anytime a black, they can get a black man to cop out to something, they satisfied. Okay, first of all, we're going to start with the investigation. If you can see in this left hand corner, this is what they found nothing. 
They couldn't even lift a fingerprint. So how could I be convicted of a crime that I did not do? If they couldn't convict, they really didn't want to do the crime scene because they admitted that the crime scene had already been trampled through. How long do you think blood going to last on a napkin, 23 years? What color would you think the napkin would be? Okay, when they brought it to the trial, it was like brand new. So now you tell me who, who lying, who telling the truth. I'm doing free time for somebody else. You know what I mean? I'm saving a rich man's son from being in a death penalty. I have a transcript for one of Darnell Hartsfield's interviews that I'm going to read for you now. One of the victim's mothers said, I don't want no one to be set up to take this case just to bring closure to me and the rest of my families. Well, that's exactly what happened. Me and my cousin, Romeo Pinkerton, we were stooges for the state, you know, to solve this case. The people's family members, they wanted closure. I went to DPS around December of 1983, and I passed a polygraph test. At that time, I had no scars on me whatsoever. My body examination by Stuart Dowell. And they talked about the amount of blood that was left at the KFC. That's whoever, and that whoever's blood that was had to have been severely injured. My cousin, Romeo, was scared to die. He knew they was going to kill him if he went to trial. They said to me, we'll offer you five life sentences. We'll take your death penalty off. I said, I'd rather go to my grave because I'm innocent than to admit something I didn't do. I don't particularly know how my blood got there, but I know that I wasn't there. My attorneys could find no paper trail. All they could come up with was a box that came in at a later date. There was no pictures of that box at the KFC. And concerning the rapes of one of the victims, Hartfield says, basically, no way. He goes on to say, quote, I got eight sisters and I got a mother. And I would give my life before I would see that happen to another individual, to a female. The interviewer asked him, do you think Mankins Jr. did it? And Darnell replied, quote, I'm not going to sit in this camera and tell you that he did that. But what I'm saying, though, <laughs> is that it's a possibility. I'm saying that by his daddy being friends with the lead investigator, I feel like the impropriety of it, the lead investigator, should have dismissed himself for the case because he was too close. I will close on that note. God knows my innocence, and that's all that matters. Okay, homeboy. <laughs> So that is the conclusion of the case so far. They have not found a third suspect. Um, God, I mean, I would really love to know who it was. I'm sure the families would. It's devastating. Personally, for me, I think it's Elton Winston. Like, does anyone else think that he totally had something to do with this? And this is insane. And did they even try to hunt him down and get a DNA sample and put it into CODIS? Like, what's going on with this guy? So for the family members of the victims, they actually spoke out. Recently, they decided to break their silence and kind of talk about how the murders affected them, you know, afterward and up to um, 
to the present. Lana Maxwell, who is now Lana Dunkerley, she was David Maxwell's widow. She sat in her Houston office and talked about the past 30 years and how hard his death affected her. Dunkerley, who is now 48, well, at the time, said she moved from Kilgore to escape what she perceived as constant scrutiny, feeling like everyone viewed her as, quote, the girl who was married to that KFC victim. And also after learning Hartsfields was housed only 20 minutes from her house, which is disgusting, well, her office where she worked, Miss Dunkerley said that it really pushed her away. And she said she couldn't really fully escape. After Hartsfield's trial and before moving, Dunkerley said goodbye to her husband by placing a single rose on his grave, telling him she was proud of him and she was sorry for what had happened. Quote, I wanted to live again, she said. And then referring to the killer, she said, quote, I forgave them. I'm not angry anymore. I just want to know what happened. She said the stress from losing her husband compounded by the years of the investigation dragging on, caused her second marriage to crumble. She's on her third now, and she said they have their ups and downs, but she doesn't feel the weight of the case like she once did. White Oak resident Kirstine Nicholson, who's 47, said the murder of her older brother, Monty Landers, changed their mother. Although she remained strong for her children, she said she can't forget how her mother cried that night when she found out. Kiersey said, quote, I had to lay in bed with her and she cried and not just cry. She like wailed. She was wailing. I've never heard anyone cry before. I've never heard anyone cry like that before. And she said that her mother said, quote, I can't believe I laid here in bed asleep as my child was being murdered out in the woods. Can you imagine the pain, the suffering? My heart just broke. Joey Johnson's girlfriend at the time went on to find love again. And Joey's older brother, which is a little risque, they would actually go on to get married and have two kids together. But they would divorce after 20 years of marriage. During that time, Joey's brother, Jimmy, go to jail twice and if you want to know more about that you're gonna have to check it out on the patreon in one of my deep dive episodes because I will be going more into all of that nonsense well it's not nonsense it's people's lives and you can't tell people how to live you can't tell people how to love so no shade to you guys William Brown, one of the investigators working with Pirtle, said he believes the right men are behind bars. And he hopes the third will be caught in his lifetime, like he wants to see it happen. He said, quote, 30 years is a long time, so that person could be dead. And if that is the case, then we may never know, unless someone with knowledge of the crime gives us information. We might have to exhume a body. But if we get information pointing to a specific person, then we will do whatever it takes to see if they are the the person being sought. Which is great, because like I said, justice. The family deserves it. The victims deserve it. The people that have worked so hard on this case deserve it, you know? Come on. 
Pirtle said the case is still fuck with him, honestly, in his mind, his thoughts. He said, quote, it has been in my life since it happened and continues to be. I think about it every day and I lie awake some nights with it on my mind. It has been a big part of my life. And though I am retired, I still want the third person. So for me, I think the most cringeworthy, well, one of the most cringeworthy things out of this whole entire situation is the fact that Darnell has been up for probation. Romeo has been up for probation twice. It's been denied, but it's like, if you have five life sentences, where the fuck is probation coming in? Explain it to me, legal system. Explain it. I know Hartsfield will be eligible for parole again in January of 2023. I know it's possible to speak up, make your voice heard, and petition against this stuff. Keep these people in jail. Keep them behind bars. They ruin lives. They don't deserve to enjoy theirs, I feel. I feel. And you can quote me on it. So that's all I have for you guys regarding the KFC murders. Oh, I need to decompress. I need a glass of wine. Do you guys miss my sip breaks? I sure as hell do. (laughs) So I'm going to go ahead and get you guys out of here relatively quickly, I guess, today. And let's do these IG shout outs before that, because, of course, I love this shit. Number one. At burn it all 13 with underscores between each word because i'm not going to just sit there and say all those underscores hey there welcome <laughs> at shoemaker dot juanita hello lady hello welcome at jrel 77 welcome male or female jrel number four j smithy 55 i'm assuming you're a guy what's up guy Welcome. Thank you for the follow. Number five, at Take a Dirt Nap. I really feel like I've shouted you guys out before. And I think I keep selecting you because I love your at name. <laughs> and it speaks to me for some creepy reason. Okay. Number six, at My Podcast Addiction. Hello. Welcome, fellow podcast lover or something. Yeah. <laughs> Number seven, at Lil underscore silly one. Hey, Lil Silly. Hey. Number eight, Inside Julius's Mind. It's actually a podcast too. Check them out. Number nine, at Horror on Horror. Hello, you guys. This is actually a pretty big horror page, which I'm pretty excited about. Okay. And last but not least, number 10, at Echo's Path. And they are a website and podcast dated, dedicated to missing and unde- unidentified. Sorry, guys. This is why I drink wine so I can speak relatively. Okay. It's a website and podcast dedicated to missing and unidentified people. So please go ahead and check them out. Like I said, it's at Echoes Path, E-C-H-O-E-S-P-A-T-H. And maybe you've seen someone that they're looking for. That's all I have for you guys today. Um, Like I said, always 
write us a review give us a five-star rating if you want give us a one-star rating if you want but like don't do that because you know that's shitty um constructive criticism is always welcome I'm always trying to learn my name is Kayla this has been Black True Crime I hope you had a great time and I will see you guys later you have a right to kill me have a right to do that but you have no right to judge me